Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Melissa Smith of Freilich Farm, a passionate gardener, dahlia enthusiast, and experienced flower farmer. As a Clemson certified master gardener and a self-taught expert in the art of cut flower cultivation, Melissa brings a wealth of knowledge and a deep love for nurturing beauty in every bloom. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So give us a little bit of background of how did you get interested in growing flowers? Well, I I come from a life of gardening and growing up and living in the country. So being around nature was always kind of a part of my life, but actually growing things on my own didn't really start until probably my mid twenties. Um, I kind of started to become interested in just growing some vegetables on my own. Um, by like my early thirties, that's when I did my Clemson certified master gardener program. That was when we moved to South Carolina and I was just, I was very interested in kind of having a more sustainable life Mm -hmm. and that included growing a lot of my own food. Um, Little did I know, you know, how much effort that really takes. (laughs) So, but then um, in that process, I started researching cut flower gardens just because I thought it would be cool just to Mm -hmm. have my own you know, I liked having pretty things in my house. So in that process, I came across Lisa Mason Siegler of the Gardener's Workshop. Mm-hmm. And that just opened my eyes to all that was available out there. Um, just how much and and this was way back when, I mean, this was in the early days before she'd written half her book. She had a little blogger blog and was just kind of putting it out there, the things she was doing. And so I started following along and within a year, my raised bed vegetable garden was all flowers. And my husband was like, well, what are we going to eat? And I was like, there's grocery stores. We'll be okay. Um, I was into this cut flower thing and that's kind of where it started. And that was almost 12 years ago. Mm. All right. So you kind of dove in. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and I mean, it was just like for the first, uh, first two years, it was just growing in a backyard, kind of just seeing what I could do. Um, just trying out different varieties, seeing, you know, testing out my climate, seeing what was possible. The third year after that, um, my husband, he raises pigs as well. And we were living in a neighborhood at the time, but he managed to find a little land about five minutes away that was actually in the county. So you could raise animals on it. Uh huh. And so he started raising some pigs there and the landowner there ran a construction company and he was also a big gardener. So he found out I wanted to grow cut flowers. So one day he just took all his big equipment and cleared me a little quarter acre field and just said, here, have fun, grow what you want. And I was like, seriously? Um, Now that ended up being like, the probably the hardest I was on that little field for two years and it it, it was the worst soil uh-huh. 
it was hard as a rock. Um, we have clay soils around here. And I, I learned so many things in those two years. I probably had so many breakdowns in those two years. Um, it just, you know, it was definitely kind of like baptism by fire there. But I learned a lot about soil development. I learned a lot about what is possible. I learned what deer will eat. Mm -hmm. All those kinds of things that you experience um, in you know, the early years of a farm. And, and then finally, after two years of being there, I kind of moved to a slightly different part of the property that was a little bigger field that um, we'd been running pigs on it for a few years. So the soil was much better. Mm -hmm. And that was my first year trying to go big, so to speak. And I kind of took on probably about half an acre Mm -hmm. of the field which ended up really kind of being too big and we still learned a lot we had a lot of flooding that spring lost a lot of crops um then come july of that year like we i had just planted everything you know finished all the fall plantings dahlias were growing well all this kind of stuff and we found out we were moving Oh. Um, so this was all down in Columbia, South Carolina. That's where we started our farm. And so within a span of a week, my husband had a new job up here. Um, we're just north of Greenville in the Traveler's Rest area. And so basically he, he had to take the job within two weeks of signing on. I spent another three months down in Columbia trying to get our house sold. Also trying to, you know, kind of figure out how in the world we were going to move our farm. We're some yeah. of those lucky people, you know, that got to move a farm. Um, well, there's <laughs> nothing coming. Well, yeah, there's nothing like starting over from scratch. I mean, exactly. like so much fun. Yeah. It, you know, it's one of those things I was glad it came when it did because mm -hmm. we had enough experience to know what didn't work and what we would do differently. Um, so it, it, it timed out well, I guess yeah, to say. Absolutely. So we moved up here to, um, we're in a little town called Traveler's Rest, which is the cutest, most adorable little town. And it's, it's been a, it's been a good move. The climate here is much better. We are kind of in the foothills of the Blue Ridge mountains. Mm -hmm. We're only about 20 minutes from the North Carolina, South Carolina state line. And it has the the market here in this area is really good. There are tons and tons of event florists. Like this is a big area for weddings and events and things mm -hmm. like that because it has all that beautiful mountain scenery and and Greenville, South Carolina. It you know pretty much it ranks on just about every top ten list of best places to go visit for a weekend, best places yes. to live. <laughs> and yeah. so it's Boomtown. Um, so it we're very blessed to have a really good market here. That's awesome. So then let's kind of move a little bit into like, what is your marketing? What, where do you, where do you sell your products? Now, obviously you do a lot of dahlias and you sell a lot of tubers, mm -hmm. but like for your fresh flowers, let's break down that marketing for us. Where do those go? Okay. Yes. So our primary market is wholesale to florist. Okay. That's where I would say probably 70%, um, sometimes more than that, of our fresh product goes on a weekly basis. There, basically, it most of it goes into weddings and events on the weekends. I always say that my flowers party hardier than I do. Mm. Um, so it, 
that's where the majority of it goes. And then we also kind of have a small, about a, another little third of the business that is retail. And that consists mainly of delivered bouquets, like delivered to your door. Okay. We're out every Thursday morning running deliveries. So a couple of years ago, I just started offering on my website where people could order a bouquet and have it to their door. And it turned out to be a really good thing. I started that in 2019. And of course, you know, COVID came along in 2020. So I was glad that I already had the infrastructure set up for that because mm -hmm. that's kind of what floated us, you know, for about a year and a half there. Um, okay. So for so for a while, we were mainly retail, but um, thankfully events and have, all that has picked back up again. I, I really like doing wholesale to florist. That's a little more my speed. I, I don't mind doing the retail stuff, but I like it kind of at the level it's at. We, you know, we tried building it a little bit bigger after COVID to see, you know, hey, would I like it? And it was, it was just too much. Mm. So pulled it back, went more into wholesale and that's kind of our thing. So that's where the fresh products go in. And then of course, you know, there's, as you mentioned, the diatubers, that's kind of the other little like, income portion of the farm as well. Yeah. And then that is, that's mainly marketed via like Instagram, Facebook. Somewhat it's mainly marketed via email marketing. So people just discover so, you. So I use social media, mainly Instagram to funnel people to my email newsletter. So mm -hmm. I write a newsletter that is specifically for Dias called the Dia Lovers newsletter. Okay. And that is, it's at least a bi-weekly. Sometimes it's weekly, like during diocese and I write it a little bit more just because there's yep. more to write about. Um, and so that's kind of my main marketing focus for, for the fresh cut dias. Um, we do a lot more bouquets on the retail end during diocese season. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. But also, but also it's, you know, for when we have our two diocese every year. And gotcha. Pretty much that newsletter. I mean, it's all about dyes from how to grow, dealing with pests, you know, how to fertilize and feed your dyes. But then I also do a lot of stuff about different varieties, being in a climate um, where it's just so hot and humid, and that is everything dyes hate. We've ha really had to do a lot of research and trialing, trying to find which varieties work. Mm -hmm. um, so I I do actually spend a lot of time just on, you know, talking about these are a whole bunch of great white dahlias that you can grow because let me tell you, I can never grow enough white dahlias because I grow for florist. Mm -hmm. um, but, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so, the, so the, the tubers and all are mostly marketed through the Dia Lovers newsletter. Okay. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, so then obviously we have to spend some time talking about dahlias, but let's, <laughs> before we get there, let's talk a little bit about kind of, I want to go back to that wholesale aspect. Cause I just want to understand how that works. Sure. So do you have like a, a price list that goes out once a week? So I have a website. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a Squarespace website that I set up a couple of years ago and it's it's separate from my like, you know, if you go to Freilich.com, that's the public facing website. Mm. We have a separate wholesale website. And what I do is I update it on a weekly basis. I usually update on Friday afternoons. 
And when I've updated, I go like, I'll post it on Instagram. That way my florists know the inventory on the site is current. I will list at a minimum two weeks worth of inventory at a time. Mm. There are some things that you can predict farther out. So, you know, I might say, Hey, you can order this for, you know, the next month. Um, it, you know, it, it all depends on the type of product it is, um, like greenery items, any of our foliage type things, those I can usually say, okay, you know, I know I've got 50 bunches of this, all that stuff is cut to order. So, you know, if I cut it week one, if I cut it week three or four, it doesn't matter. Um, it's going to be fine. That type of stuff holds well in the field. So those items they can order farther out, something like dahlias, those are usually going to be, you know, two weeks out. Occasionally I'll do three. It all just kind of depends on what point we are in the season. I try every year to get to the point of listing farther and farther out, because one thing I've really learned is that event florists are different from your everyday a kind of brick and mortar retail florist. They are looking for very specific things. They, you know, some of them are doing an event every weekend. Some of them are doing one large event per month. Mm. So they're ordering usually a month in advance, sometimes maybe even farther out than that. So the more you can push your inventory to, to list farther out, the more sales you're going to get. If you uh-huh. wait you know, where it's just that little two week window, you know, your regular customers, they're going to set some of their budget aside. They're saving some because they want what you got. Mm -hmm. But if you can do it even farther out, you will get larger sales. So every year, like, you know, I just, it's, it's a process. I have people ask me like other farmers are like, how do you figure that out? How do you know? Yeah. And it it's something that you have to train your eye for. And it takes a couple of years to be quite honest. Um, you know, it takes noticing, you know, well, when that variety of dahlia starts blooming, okay, well, that one's going to keep going pretty steady for about three or four weeks. Whereas this variety over here is kind of slower. And whereas So, you know, it might produce you a few stems every week and it's going to keep doing that for eight weeks. You kind of have to know what crops come on in flushes, what crops, you know, come on very steady over a long period of time. And that just takes time. You have to keep good records, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm not necessarily the best at, but the the longer I farm, the better I get. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of how, so like, that's kind of how the, the wholesale ordering process. So essentially they order through that, you know, I get the emails, um, I deliver on Thursdays. That's kind of seems to be a pretty good timing wise because most events are Saturdays, you know, sometimes Friday or Sunday, but, and they can also, they can pick up at the farm Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Friday. So if they need product at other times, which is honestly very popular and very common i'm only about 25 minutes from downtown greenville so i'm you know fairly centrally located it's not like they're having to drive an hour to pick up at the farm so that does work out pretty well and it saves me from having to do a second delivery day every week 
Gotcha. Okay. And then I'm assuming that how did you start developing these, these customers? Were you just driving around and talking to all of them? I mean, some of these folks just work out of, well, some of the event planners and stuff, I'm assuming just work out of their home. So maybe it's more of they're just finding you. A lot of them did find me because you're right. Um, you know, I, a lot of people, they do, they have studios in their homes or they just have a studio and, you know, they're not there every day, like a daily florist. Um, so you couldn't just drop in. I did once upon a time, try going around to a few florists. Didn't work, didn't really produce anything. Mm. I was trying to pick up some business in the, in the kind of daily market. And, you know, honestly, a lot of what I grow is just not what they're interested in. Mm. And that's okay. I love what I grow. I tell people I grow wedding flowers because that's what I like. I really like the high-end specialty type stuff. I find it find it not only interesting, but challenging because a lot of that stuff is harder to grow and I like the challenge behind it. So, I mean, I do have a few retail florists that buy from me kind of on a weekly basis because they like something a little different and a little mm -hmm. unique. Um, but the majority of those are event florists who then started a retail side of their business. Gotcha. <laughs> so okay. yeah. they were already buying. So in the very beginning, to be honest, a lot of them found me via Instagram. Um, you know, I mentioned that we kind of had to make a quick transition from Columbia up to the upstate area. Correct. I, and, and at and at that time, so like my husband was going back and forth every week, he would work four days up here and then come home for three days. Well, it just so happened that a couple of florists in the Greenville area found me on Instagram and they're like, would you be willing to deliver up there? I was like, well, y'all are in luck because I'm moving there. I was like, and my husband comes up there every Wednesday. So he yeah. was taking buckets of flowers to the Greenville area before we even lived here. Oh, wow. And so that was one way that, you know, I kind of like, it was one of those situations I told the first florist that I talked to, I was like, I said, you know, I can send flowers, but it'd be a lot better, you know, if I could have more orders. I was like, would you mind telling some of your friends? And she's like, oh, sure. Come to find out the event florist community in this town is very well connected and they're all very friendly with each other, gotcha. which is great because yeah. you don't have like that cutthroat competition. Gotcha. Um, So that was fantastic. I also, in the first three years of farming here, this is a lot of how I financed the farm as well. I spent time freelancing, doing freelance design work on the weekends for their events with these different florists. So I got to see, you know, how they were using my flowers, but also how they were using flowers that came in from all over the world, how certain flowers can sometimes, you know, solve a problem, mm -hmm. um, how some flowers, you know, they're only working for specific situations, but they're crucial to that. So that's important type of thing. Um, and also I just got to build those good close friendships. Um, you know, like I'm good friends, you know, I've watched their kids grow up, like all those kinds of things. It's just like, you start to build those relationships and it came through doing that freelancing. Now I will admit I, you know, freelancing every weekend and then working the farm five days a week. Yeah. I about killed myself for a little while there. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> finally realized that, you know, that was not sustainable, but it just gave me a really good relational foundation with my customers. And 
I firmly believe that relationships are what sell flowers. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, it's, it's very unique. That's that area you have though, then, because just talking about, it, I'm just trying to, I'm assuming that area then just has a lot of events because it's not, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a fair amount of money in that area and yes. it's a very popular touristy or just visiting, um, area as well. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. And then it must, obviously it must then coincide too, then with the Dahlia season, because your Dahlia season is only what, three months long? So our main bloom time is usually mid-August through mid-October, sometimes a little later. Um, the big flush comes in September. Mm-hmm. You Okay, so you can have them in bloom here, I mean, by early June if you really want it to. Okay. It's, but there's a couple of factors. Number one, you're going to be fighting some major bugs. Um, We have Japanese beetles like crazy Mm -hmm. and thrips are a huge issue in that kind of May, June period around here. Um, I mean, you have all kinds of things. Also, dahlias just don't hold up as well when it's really hot. Like they definitely, their base life is shorter. They still work okay for event work where you only need it to last for three days. You know, as long as it gets through Saturday at midnight, it's fine. If it flops after that, who cares? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that can be a really nice thing about selling to event floors. Sometimes <laughs> you can sell those shorter base life flowers, but, um, it's, there are some people that grow, you know, that have them through the summer. Um, I have for several years now, I've kind of taken the thing of we usually plant after Mother's Day. Okay. That seems to time it out right so that they start in August, which is good. So it puts it so I'm getting the main flush of flowers when there is the most demand. It also on the front end with the planting is it puts it so that like the majority of our really intensive annual production spring stuff, most of that is about finished by Mother's Day around here. May and early June, we are selling primarily herbaceous perennials. Um, There's a couple of those spring annuals that still flower in that period, but it's just not quite as intensive. You know, your things like your poppies and ranunculus that you're having to harvest every day, those are finished by Mother's Day here. So it gives us a good window there. So it just kind of helps spread out the work. Like we could plant as early as probably the end of March. I've done it. Didn't like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, so like it is possible. That is the beautiful thing about this climate, is we have a very long growing season. I mean, our frost free period is mid April through usually about the end of October, sometimes mid November. It depends. Um, and then you know, if you've got a little bit of season extension, like our, we usually start harvesting flowers in March. And if we do heirloom mums, we'll finish at Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Because of the length of our flower season, 
you can do a lot with dahlias. You can have an extremely long season. If you wanted to have blooms from June through the end of October, you could. If you had a hoop house, you could keep them through the end of November. Uh-huh. We don't usually get like an extremely like, you know, down into the mid twenties freeze until December most years. Gotcha. So it is possible within a hoop house and some frost cloth to keep them going till the end of November. I've done that a time or two. That honestly, that's one of the funnest parts about dahlias and growing them in this climate, even though it's it's a hard climate to grow in, is that because of the length of it and just the fact that like we're hot, but we're not like you're gonna die in the middle of the field hot all the time. Yes. We do get some of those weeks every summer, but it's it's a world of difference. Um, I mean, the year the couple years there where I grew dahlias down in Columbia, like that's rough. It was hard, but just moving two hours north made all the difference. And I mean, and now since all the zone changes, I'm actually considered, I think still the same zone as I was down in Columbia. Um, so it, you know, it just, it's great though, because it gives you so much flexibility in what you can do with your crop. You can succession plant dahlias, A lot of people, you know, in shorter growing seasons, they just plant them, they bloom, and there you go. I've taken some varieties that, like, ones that make a lot of tubers. A couple of years ago, there's a variety called Blizzard. It's a beautiful white dahlia. It's great if you're growing for weddings, you know, and people that need white. I It makes a bazillion tubers. So I thought, let's try this out. I planted three crops of it all a month apart. And it was beautiful because I never had a lack of white dyes that season. They just all like, cause one variety will bloom. Like when you plant something, usually it's going to bloom for three to four weeks. It, and then it's going to kind of peter off a little bit and, you know, you'll get some more blooms out of it, but a lot of times it's going to take it another anywhere from four to six weeks before it's really kind of up and going again. And a lot of times, if that first flush didn't start until September, you're going to be running up against frost. And so that doesn't happen. But when I succession planted like that, I think they started like mid-August and then the next crop came on mid-September and then like early October, the next one came on. It was beautiful. And that's the lovely thing about this climate. I mean, if you have enough space, you can do things like that. Okay. So I didn't realize that these flowers then come on in waves. Um, interesting. Cause I think obviously we could succession plant too. We just never get them early enough. We would have to do them in a tunnel or something to try to push them on the early side. Although I felt when we did do in a tunnel, cause I think we did that one year, the quality of the blooms just wasn't quite there. And I don't know, maybe we probably abused them or something like that. Cause they should do much better in a tunnel. So I have tried tunnel growing. Um, We did it for three years. This year was the first year I didn't do any. And my takeaways on growing dyes in a tunnel, if you're in a cold climate and you need it for season extension, by all means, go for it. Um, If for some reason down here, you know, you needed it to pull out the end of the season. What we did this year is that, I'm, you know, I'm only growing on about an acre, so we're a little limited space-wise. I planted my dahlias in one of my tunnel areas, but we took the plastic off. Mm. So they grew there all summer, no plastic. The third week of October, 
we pulled the plastic back on. Um, turned out they kind of like, basically they finished their flush and they were done by the time we hit, I think it was the mm. second week of November okay. where we hit a frost. I looked around, I was like, I don't see enough buds that it's worth the trouble of me covering everything. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. But if you had so started later, yeah. But if you had started later, you probably mm-hmm. could have made something do happen. Exactly. The other issue I had, which is, this is the reason I pulled the plastic off, is that the stems were stretching so bad. Uh-huh. Yes. And and then you would have this top-heavy stem that would break. Like, you know, I would take a dahlia that was, say, three and a half feet tall in the field, and that thing was six to seven feet tall inside that tunnel, stems were breaking toppling even i mean we tried two layers of netting to Mm -hmm, support mm -hmm. and it just it was only working with like the very shortest varieties to growing them in the tunnel like so that's why we were i was like well okay we need to use the space i can't give it up for a whole you know summer like this so we just took the plastic off Mm -hmm. and i mean we're using like the farmer's friend tunnels so you know they're easy enough to cover and uncover Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Corinna, what is our tip of the week? This week, my farm marketing minute tip is to grow your email list. This should be a priority in your business. And the reason I say this is because I think a lot of farms tend to initially focus a lot on social media, right? On growing their traffic, getting eyeballs on their brand. And although that is important, we don't own the customer on Facebook. Facebook could decide to stop our profile and then we can't reach them anymore. So we want to get the contact information of people who might be interested in us so that we can reach out to them directly. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I look at my customer and even my prospect list as one of the most valuable assets that I have in my business uh, mm-hmm. because it's it's my means to grow my revenue. Every time I send an email to my list, I make money. So I want to get that customer list bigger and bigger and bigger. So the way that we do this, I'd be curious to see what you do, but we have a system for collecting those leads. We use our lead magnets. So we we promote different, like a free offer on our social media pages. It might be like my A to Z vegetable storage guide, which is a PDF download. And I say, hey, if you want this guide, give me your email address. And I'll have people subscribe to that. And then they're on my list. And then I can follow up with emails after that and say, oh, you're probably interested in vegetables if you downloaded this guide, right? So we Mm -hmm. use a lot of lead magnets. We promote them on social. Um, But it might not be an email list. Like it could be a texting service, right? Like you might be collecting people's phone numbers. You might have a notebook at the farmer's market when you just ask people to sign up when they're buying from you. And when you design that lead magnet, it's important that you really think about the content, right? Because the, the content that you put in there is going to qualify your lead. So I have another lead magnet called, is CSA right for you? It's the six questions to ask before you join a CSA. And only a person thinking about joining a mm-hmm. CSA is going to download that, right? So I can have a different kind of conversation with them than with someone who downloaded my A to Z vegetable storage guide. So really trying to think if you're a, a beef producer, maybe a beginner's guide to buying bulk beef, like that might be a really great resource. And you know that someone's interested in buying your bulk beef if they're downloading that and you don't mm-hmm. feel as weird reaching out to them afterwards and following up with, you know, a request to buy. Or another so figuring lead out ma- what a what what a great lead magnet is is a, is an awesome strategy for growing that email list. 
Yeah. And another one for meat producers would be like five steps to cooking the first, the perfect grass fed steak. Mm. Cause that is absolutely one of those big challenges that they all struggle with is, you know, making sure that that grass fed steak tastes nice and is still nice and juicy. Yeah. Or understanding labels. I've seen that one. Um, cheat sheets, <laughs> infographics, uh, virtual video tours. Like you want to uh -huh. see a virtual tour of our farm and the trans see the transparency of how we raise our animals but you can only access it if you give us our email address. There's so many things that you mm -hmm. can explore. Absolutely. If you want more farm marketing tips like this, check out my top rated weekly show, the My Digital Farmer podcast. I teach marketing concepts and interview lots of farmers to find out what's working and not working in farm marketing to help you find more customers, increase your sales and build a strong brand for your farm. Look for the My Digital Farmer podcast on your favorite podcast app. All right. Well, I, I think we've kind of started diving into to the dahlias anyway. So let's just keep going there. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Um, so you said white dahlias is something that's huge for you. And I did notice that mm -hmm. you are using, you're covering some of your buds. When do you decide to cover versus not cover with like the linen? So we use organza bags. Um, we have a lot of grasshoppers here and Honestly, I just have not found any way to control them and to keep them from eating the blooms. So that's why we use the organza bags. Um, the How I decide is basically all the lighter colored dyes, those are the ones that the bugs go for first. So anything, so essentially when we start to go put the bags on, we go through every bed that has white in it first. Then we'll go for like all the blush or yellows, um, lavenders, anything, you know, that's soft pastel colors. And then we'll start into like some of the darker colors, you know, maybe go into like the peaches and tans and rust and things like that. Um, when I get to that point, you know, if we're starting to run out of bags or something, then I'm like, okay, well, what do I know for sure is sold? You know, what do I have to protect? Um, if it's a variety that I've got a ton of, and I know it's okay if I lose some stems, then we might not worry about protecting that one that week. Also time of year plays a big, um, factor in that because when you get to about mid October, the bugs have usually calmed down enough that at that point I will sometimes cover the whites, but usually everything else is fine. And oh, those times of years are great because you don't have to sit there and take bags off of every stem when you um, are harvesting. That kind of gets to be a pain. Yeah. But it's worth it for a beautiful, pristine dahlia. Um, man, there, there's just nothing like them. And I, I can't stand to have bug-eaten dahlias. I can't stand to see the brown from thrips mm -hmm. from their damage on them. Um I, I, they've got to be perfect. Like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm maybe not quite as strict on some of my other flowers, but when it comes to dyes, they have to be perfect. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, oh yeah, you're asking like, so when do we put them on? So you want to put it on when the bud is completely green, when there's absolutely no sign of color showing at all. Because as soon as that first petal begins to lift, that's when the bugs start going in. Okay. So okay. there's there's kind of a point when they're growing and the stem kind of stiffens up. Um, because you'll see that some varieties, like the bud will face downward for a little while, and then eventually it'll kind of straighten up. 
And once it kind of straightens up, like it's got to be sturdy enough to hold the bag up essentially. Mm-hmm. So when it hits that point and before any of the pedals have started to lift, that's what you're looking for. Okay. All right. And then I'm assuming you're picking which buds to put those on based on just the, the big King bud in the center, or do you typically just do? Yes. Okay. And are you then thinning yeah. out, cutting all the other ones off just to give all the energy to that one? We do not. Okay. Um, it's, it's just labor intensive and honestly, like I find my customers, they don't mind having the buds. Sometimes those get used in flower crowns, boutonnieres, wrist corsages. Okay. Um, they kind of like those little accents. So I don't worry about it. The only time I disbud in the field, and this is honestly pretty rare, occasionally on the larger varieties such as cafe or, you know, some of the, I don't grow a ton of dinner plate varieties, but cafe, we do grow a lot of because we grow for weddings. Yeah. Um, so occasionally those, the side buds they produce usually still produce a pretty decent flower. So say it's, um, okay, for example, let's say it's Friday morning and I'm going through the field and I see some cafes that like have just opened. Well, I know from experience of testing my flowers that I cannot cut a cafe, go stick it in my flower cooler, and then sell it when I go out on deliveries the next Thursday. It will not hold up through that weekend event. Mm. Um I know I never hold dyes more than four days. We try to move them as quickly as possible. So anything that opens Friday, Saturday either has to go into retail stuff or it just gets deadheaded and goes to the compost. So sometimes on those big type varieties, occasionally you can take out like the central bud and still use some of the side ones, but that's about the only time we do any disbudding. Okay. All right. Interesting. And then um, for your whites, I mean, cafe is probably one of the bigger ones. Um Mm-hmm. And I see, cause I'm here looking at your de- gallery here. Um, you've got this <laughs> caramel antique that's got like almost pink, uh, a little bit of purplish pink, um, highlights. It does. It's kind of iridescent. Okay. Yeah, that one's that one's a really nice one. Um, I'm bringing that back this year. So I love that variety. It grows well. It produces a lot of stems it's kind of a bad tuber producer. Okay. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to try it another time because it has everything else going for it. So I'm going to give it one more go. Cause I really do like that one. Um, yeah. it's pretty cause it's kind of creamy ish. Um, it does get more of that iridescence when the weather cools down around here. That's another fun thing we have is that the colors in our dyes change pretty dramatically in our climate, depending on the weather. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that also makes it very hard to predict sometimes. Like as far as, you know, okay, because for example, there's a there's a variety called Sweet Natalie. Yeah. And when it's cold, like when it's cooler, she is the most perfect silvery blush. When it's warm, she's a pale lavender. And so, you know, those are just two completely separate colors. Yes, they're both pretty. Yes, they both go together. But if it's a white and blush wedding, sorry, lavender doesn't work. Yeah, I actually look at so, a picture here and I think there's both of those colors in the same picture. Mm-hmm. I have, so I'll tell you a little trick I found. 
when we were growing dahlias in the high tunnel with the plastic on, uh-huh. the plastic was basically like, you know, just because you're, you're losing some light there. When I grew that variety under plastic, it was that pretty little silvery blush all season long. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so that year, that picture, I know what picture you're talking about. And that year I had that variety in the field and in the tunnel. And so I cut those on the same day. And uh, I was like, look at the difference. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got Linda's baby, which is really pretty too. Um, yes. My question is, okay, why would you name a flower bridezilla? Because wouldn't that trigger every florist out there? I don't know, but I got to tell you, she's one of my favorite whites. She's great. At the end of the season, she does this beautiful, almost peony-like thing when she's really fully open. Water lily dahlias like that tend to close up a little bit at night. Uh And so they they get this peony-like look to them. Yeah. That would, I mean, that I know, like, I, I don't know why you call it Bridezilla, but hey, she's great. She's a good one. So then that's a, actually a question I've got because you've got the Rycroft Jan and then you got Bridezilla. Mm-hmm. Rycroft mm-hmm. Jan, what is that? What kind of, of, of Dahlia is that called? That one, I believe, is a ball. Um, I, you know, Okay, so there are, there's, oh, 20-something forms of dyes. Oh, maybe. gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So here's the thing. And, like, it's funny. Like, I've realized with my customers, there's really only, like, three or four, like, categories, you know, that they really care about. Like, yes. they're, like, the big fluffy ones. Yes. And I know yeah. that means the decorative ones, you know, like a cafe or something ball shaped well i mean you've got pom-pom you've got just kind of like your regular ball yeah. you've got semi-formal formals like anything that is that rounded shape yeah now, that rycroft jan is kind of the ones that has the honeycomb type of form mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i will say like i mean i have some customers when they say ball shaped diet they want that gotcha. they don't want so like if you look at blizzard blizzard is a rounded ball shape correct but it's a different form Correct. Okay. Now I can recognize that. And then what would you call Cornell bronze? Um, that one's kind of like a, I think that one's more of a honeycomb kind of a ball shape too. Like I consider those balls, like basically I do, there are ball shapes. There are the big decoratives. There are water lilies, like Bradzilla is a water lily. Mm -hmm. Um, trying to think what else. And then caramel antique would, Ooh, that one's weird. That's, that's almost between that one. Yeah, that one, it's either a formal or a semi-formal. I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 fun figuring all these out. And then what would you call cream de cassis? Is that more of a cream de cassis? Yes. Um, that one is a water lily, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Okay. So now all right. So water lily is more of those more laid out. Yeah, that kind of open, flat, kind of more yeah. of a lotus flower type shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's talk fertilization because that's one thing I think I've struggled with. How much fertilizer should folks be putting on? Are there any particular nutrients that dahlias want more of than others? So, okay. So when obviously we're just going to go ahead and assume that you've done your soil test, that you've Uh got your soil amended properly. That's our base. That's where we're starting from. Yeah. 
Um, and since I know there's a lot of farmers and stuff listed to this, I'm going to assume that they have that done. So when you're planting dahlias, from the beginning, when you start, like we do kind of just a basic organic, you know, kind of granular, complete type fertilizer that goes in when we're started. Um, you know, if I know if I'm low in something, you know, obviously I'm going to add a little more of that, but you know, we kind of rely on soil tests, that type of thing. You want to be careful with dahlias, not to give them too much nitrogen, but it's, it's kind of become a thing like amongst the dahlia community of, Oh, dahlias don't need nitrogen. I'm like, yeah, they're plants. They need nitrogen. Like it's, I think it's gotten to the point where people aren't giving enough nitrogen these days. Okay. Um, you, I mean, you have to be careful because you can end up with this really lush green plant with no blooms and you don't want that. Really what you have to do is you have to observe the plant as it's growing. So general rule of thumb, the first two months, that's when, you know, if you want to do fish emulsion, kelp, you know, any of those kind of foliar feeds that are usually going to be higher in nitrogen, those work really well. Dahlias um, take up fertilizer like through foliar feeds very well. Just, I mean, they have those big old huge uh -huh. broad leaves. So like, you know, if you really like to spray um, compost teas, all that kind of stuff works very well on dahlias. Now, what I do is I know that somewhere around the 50, 60 day mark, that's when you're going to start seeing bud development in some of the early varieties. Like the earliest variety I think we have around here is usually Linda's Baby, Peaches and Cream. Um, those two are always the first to bloom. So I kind of use those as indicators. And when I start seeing those develop buds, that's when I switch to something that is going to be, that's going to have probably higher parts of phosphorus and potassium, more of that than the nitrogen. I think it's fine if you still have some nitrogen in it. I mean, unless you know your soil is like super high in nitrogen or something like that. Uh -huh. I think it's fine if there's still some nitrogen in your fertilizer. Um, but when I start seeing that bud development, that's when I switch over to the phosphorus and potassium feed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, and I mean, as far as what to use, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, use what you can get locally. Like, I'm a firm believer in supporting your local feed and seed and farm stores. Um, the one we have around here is great. If I want something, she doesn't carry it. She'll get it for me. That type of thing. Um, because there, there are a lot of good fertilizers out there. Um, and usually, you know, one brand name is not any better than the other. So <laughs> it's more about, you know, the percentage of what's in there. You know, what are those numbers saying? And you've got to get, more of the phosphorus and potassium as they're starting to produce those blooms. We fertilize every single week, um, especially when we hit about that three month um, mark. Sometimes in those first two months, I kind of, you know, I kind of just see how they're doing. Um, sometimes we might skip a week or so there, but when it comes to the bloom season we are fertilizing or if we need to do any spraying for pests that's what we do there let me tell you the best thing i ever did was this year um we finally number one we finally got organized got a notebook started writing down exactly what we were spraying every single week um we also you know were kind of 
making notes on, you know, just the pests that we're observing uh-huh. in the field. Um, I'm really looking forward to having like several years worth of those notes, especially on the pests, because one thing I've really learned over the years is that if you can anticipate when those things are coming, it's so much easier than if you can get ahead of an infestation than trying to control that major attack. Yeah. So we're fertilizing. And this year I actually turned a lot of that over to one of my employees. And it, the, the big thing about it was it really got done because I would struggle in years past, you know, a lot of times it would happen for four weeks in a row and then I'd miss it. Mm. And then I'd end up missing two weeks and just giving her the instructions and saying, you know, this is what we need. We're alternating, you know, this particular spray, you know, we're not going to use this one every week, every third week or whatever you need to use this. And just having it forced me to get organized about it, which was a really good thing. And she knew every Friday morning, um, because that's like the best point in our week, because we're not trying to harvest for florist orders on that day. She would come in and that was the first thing that she did, you Uh know? So uh about the first hour and a half, she was fertilizing those dahlias and man, the plants, like you could see it. This was one of the best dahlias I think I've ever had. It made such a difference, that consistency Uh and getting the fertilizer on, keeping the pest under control. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. So that, yeah. Why don't we have one guy here that he's always in at seven. And so from seven to Mm -hmm. eight, he does a few other things, but mainly he's doing our, we do a lot of micronutrients. And so he's doing a lot of spraying for that, um, putting on our powders and stuff like that. So that's actually, Mm -hmm. because I was doing it for a while this summer and I just completely got overwhelmed with it. So I just handed it off to him and he makes sure it happens. So that's been really nice. Exactly. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Having the right people, especially in those things, which um, are repeatable and able to be done just week after week after week. Mm -hmm. So, um, all right. Well, we have gone for a long time on this. I don't want to keep you too long, but before we go, a couple questions, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about getting started in this world? Start small, start slow. And no matter how long you farm and grow for, always remember that mindset that you had when you were very first starting that mindset of the, I'm a beginner and I need to learn all this and that it's okay that I don't know everything. Uh. That, that is something that that mindset, I've tried to bring that back into my life over the past year. And it has really, um, it's really, it's taught me a lot. Uh, it's, I've learned a lot of things about Dahlia specifically through that, but also it's encouraged me to try some new things, um, to put some things, you know, that I, some processes and things that I've done for many, many years to the test. And it encourages, um, some efficiencies. And so just to kind of, it's, it's easy. This is my 12th season flower farming. And so it's easy to think, okay, you know, well, we've grown this crop so many times, you know, of course we know what we're doing. Um, but that's usually when you screw it up. So mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, keeping that like, you know, stepping back and saying, all right, let's evaluate all our processes, you know, 
can can we add something? Can we learn something new here? And just keeping that mindset, like no matter how long you farm, because it in the beginning it's it's so easy to become overwhelmed. And I think that's why I say start small. You don't need to grow every single thing. Um, you know, you can make a beautiful bouquet from three ingredients, grow uh-huh. those three things, grow them really well and sell them like crazy. And, you know, you'll, you'll do a lot better than if you tried to go 20 different flowers. I mean, I, I've been there, I've grown everything under the sun, goodness gracious. Um, but <laughs> And so it, it, that's something, I mean, that we've just been continually trying to refine, refine, refine what uh-huh. we're growing and what we're doing. And, the less we grow variety wise, the better what we produce is mm. and the better our lives are just in general. Um, there's just less overwhelm. There's less my brain is having to concentrate on and focus on. So, yeah, the you know, it's it's not it's almost like less is enough. Not so much. I mean, yes, less is more, but also less is enough. And it's okay. Like you can still have a thriving, successful farm on growing a small variety number of crops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think too is one thing I was not prepared for is that the importance of filler flowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and seriously, filler flowers can be a lot of what's in the hedgerow. They can be. They can also be things that um, sometimes can be labor intensive. That's one thing I think to watch out for with those is because they tend to be annuals and annuals are pretty labor intensive. Like it depends on the scale of your farm, you know, like if you are kind of a tractor scale farm and you're doing large, big quantities of them, a lot of times you can get the efficiencies on them to really make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, that has not been the case with my farm. Like uh, actually my farm is about 70% perennial at this point. Like dahlias are really kind of the main annual. And I don't know, I kind of consider them quasi perennial because they're Mm self-perpetuating. Um, but, and so, you know, so we actually had to, had to kind of look, okay, we still need filler stuff, but we had to find it in the perennial and it's, it's lowered the labor on the farm, um, which has been really great. And yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Well, uh, and, oh, final question. What's your favorite tool? My phone. Okay. All right. Obviously for taking pictures. <laughs> well, there's the, t- taking pictures. Yes. Because that is a big way of record keeping for me. It also holds my to-do list. Yeah. But the real reason that I would say my phone is because there's a group chat on there of several farmers who are, yes, they are my competition, but they are also some of my closest friends. And I value their support and encouragement so highly. And my phone is what gives me access to that. And they're there, you know, when I have a question, hey, what do we do about this? Or, you know, or vice versa, you know, hey, where how are you planting this? Yeah. And I mean, the knowledge there, holy cow, it's incredible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Having that uh, kind of little former mastermind is so key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on today. Appreciate your time. And uh, folks can, where can folks find more about you and what you're doing? Braylick.com. 
um, that's our website. And on there, you can sign up for the Dial Lovers newsletter. Um, you, you know, if you're local to the area, you can purchase bouquets when in season. We also have a big Diatuber sale coming up on New Year's Day. So all of them will be listed there. That's kind of the hub. And on Instagram, we are Flower Therapy. That's F-L-W-R Therapy. So you can also find us there. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. And you do have a few courses too, I want to point out on your website as well that folks can get if they're actually looking at going to the next level with Dahlia's, you've Mm -hmm. got it all there for them. So. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.